HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. I'm okay if I'm not your farmer, as long as you know your farmer. And you know where your farmer is and how your farmer raises your food. And we will take care of you. I think it's come back to the fact that consumers are starting to realize that if we can get rid of a little bit of that, a little bit of those middlemen, we as consumers, we as moms, we as dads have better control that we will have food for our families. You'll hear more about that story on this episode of No Farms, No Future, the new podcast from American Farmland Trust. I'm John Piotti, President and CEO of AFT. In each episode of No Farms, No Future, created in collaboration with the Heritage Radio Network, we'll examine a critical challenge faced by farmers and ranchers today. Join us to hear their voices while grappling with tough decisions shaping their future and ours. For the rest of this episode, we turn it over to our producer, Rob Hoschel. Hello and welcome to No Farms, No Future. In today's episode, we'll begin with John Piatti, the president and CEO of American Farmland Trust. He'll discuss how food supply issues during the pandemic underscore larger questions about farming in America. In the second part of the show, ranchers, retailers, and consumers talk about how COVID demonstrates that local farms play as important a role as larger, more far-flung food suppliers. For all of this, we go now to our reporter, Rachel Gottbaum. The COVID pandemic has upended America's food system. The country's major meat processors were forced to curtail and in some cases shut down their operations because of workers sick with the virus. Restaurants, schools, and other institutions that bought food from farms near and far abruptly closed. And suddenly, ranchers and farmers that relied on a national and global food supply chain no longer had a way to sell their produce or their livestock. Many were forced to euthanize their animals or let their vegetables rot in the fields. I asked John Piotti, president of American Farmland Trust, why this happened and what it revealed about America's food system. Well, COVID, I think, was a wake-up call for a lot of Americans who had never really thought about their food supply. You go into a supermarket, and for many people, it was the first time in their life when they saw empty shelves. And I think that gave them pause. It made them wonder, where does our food come from? And it's clear that 
we increasingly get more and more of our food from a few places. The farms are getting larger and larger, and there's nothing wrong necessarily with large farms. But from a standpoint of resiliency in the face of market disruptions, as we were seeing in the pandemic, if all the food is coming from a few places, if the food supply is all based on just-in-time delivery, some modest disruptions can be disastrous. And with COVID, we were frequently seeing more than modest disruptions. So I do think that the pandemic was a a wake-up call suggesting that we really need a diverse array of farms, different sizes, different types, and we need farming across the nation so that there's more food grown closer to home. And what do you need to make those things happen? Well, first off, you have to begin to worry about farmland that's being lost around urban places and not assume that the food can all come from somewhere else. Can you explain how we got to this consolidated food supply system? Well, we do have a agricultural system that relies increasingly on larger farms. And that's the result of a couple of things. First off, there are efficiencies. There are economies of scale that occur. It's also, though, been driven by federal agricultural policy. We've had policy that for a long time has rewarded larger operations. If you think about vast stretches of the Midwest that used to have a lot of 160-acre, 320-acre farms, they now have 4,000 and 5,000-acre farms. They're still frequently family farms, but the farmer has had to acquire more land to make the numbers work. If your margins go down and down and down, one way of making the numbers work is you produce more. We have an agricultural policy that has really encouraged, it's usually described as cheap food. And I don't like that term, but we do as a society pay a smaller proportion of our income towards food than any other nation. And what that means is that not only are farmers getting a smaller share of the food dollar, but the food dollar is actually smaller because we have federal policies that help keep food costs low. We have these people that want to farm, but it's very challenging. So let's talk about the future with the workforce itself. We have a lot of land in this country that is currently farmed by very old farmers. And by the estimates of American Farmland Trust, about 380 million acres of farmland are going to change hands in the next 15 years. That's about a third of of all the farm and ranch land in America. And that's a little scary because we need farmers to grow our food and provide these important environmental services. And we want a lot of farmers. We don't want to just have all the food grown on a few very large farms. So how do we make sure that there'll be sufficient farmers in the future? It's hard. Agriculture is a tough business with very high barriers to entry. 
You have to buy land, which is at times exorbitantly expensive. You have to buy equipment, which can be quite expensive. And it's a low margin industry. So there's a real challenge. And there's really been nothing like it in American history. We've never been facing a period where we could realistically have a major shortage of farmers and ranchers. And the good news is there are plenty of people who want to farm. And one of the solutions, farmland protection. Protecting farmland with an agricultural conservation easement does two things. One, it ensures that land is always going to be there to grow food. But also, what you're doing by ensuring that a piece of property can't be developed into house lots or a Walmart is it means that land no longer has development value. And that means that that land is potentially more affordable. It has what we call a farmland value. So it's one of, I will stress it's only one tool, but it's a very important tool in order to help this next generation um, get on the land. So John, what's at stake here? What needs to happen? The quick answer is what's at stake is our future, right? Because if we don't get farming right, we quite simply don't have a future. We're not going to have the food we need, but long before we run out of the food we need, I think we're going to run out of the farmland that can simultaneously give us food and help heal our planet. A research question that AFT has tackled a piece of, but not the whole thing. No one has how much land we need to serve those two functions. So huge challenges, huge challenges ahead of us. What's American Farmland Trust doing to respond? Well, we've got to figure out a way of getting the people who want to farm and ranch on lands. We know after 40 years, the tools that are needed, we know how to protect farmland, both with agricultural conservation easements, with better planning, with good tax policy. There was really no focus on farming practices, soil health in federal policy. There was no focus on farmland protection in federal policy. In the last 35 years, $120 $120 billion in federal support has flown to those efforts because American Farmland Trust made it happen. We created those programs. We know what practices are necessary to be able to yield not only good food, but good environmental results. And we know what the challenges are to bringing on the next generation. We have proven over 40 years how to respond to each of those. It's great that we've protected six and a half million acres of farmland, but in the next 20 years, we need to permanently protect 60 million acres of farmland. And it's great that we've helped a whole bunch of farmers on millions of acres adopt better practices, but we need to get every farmer in America adopting the best practices. And how do we get the next generation brought in? We provide assistance across the country to entities that are doing very creative work on providing support services, helping would-be farmers get loans, identify property, develop business plans that are going to be successful. 
We're just not doing enough of it. I think most of the solutions are not only clear, but they've already been tested. We just need to do them at a greater scale. I'm Katie Mosman-Wadler, Executive Director of Heritage Radio Network. Stay with us for the rest of this episode of No Farms, No Future. HRN is thrilled to be the home of this new podcast because America's irreplaceable farmland grows our food and supports a trillion-dollar-a-year agriculture economy. Farmland is the foundation of our rural communities, providing jobs, recreational opportunities, and a deep connection to the land. Farms are also critical in the fight against climate change. Learn more about American Farmland Trust and how to get involved at farmland.org. Now let's return to today's show. When COVID-19 made its way to the United States, shoppers noticed right away that something was not right at their supermarket. The rush for much-needed groceries started early, and I do mean early Saturday morning for these customers. Before the sunrise, people began hoarding toilet paper and other basic supplies. And when the country's handful of mega meat processors were forced to shut down because of sick workers, grocery stores ran out of meat, too. And in Iowa, Tyson Foods confirming that two of its employees have died from the virus. At least 148 have been infected. Both plants closed. Employees in South Dakota protesting unsafe working conditions. And with several major plants shuttered, experts warning of ripple effects. All of a sudden, you have a lot of pigs that have no place to go. At the time, John Harden, a sixth-generation Indiana farmer, had to take a major pay cut, selling his pigs for a lot less. And so the pigs began to back up. The beef cattle really backed up, and the markets crashed, and all of a sudden the the demand for the animals just went away. Harden says he lost as much as 75% of his income, but he still considers himself lucky. Other ranchers were forced to kill their own animals. Eventually, some of those animals had to be euthanized because there was no place for them to, to go to be turned into meat. And the food system, you know, the food system was really challenged. As a mid-sized farmer, Harden was able to stay afloat. Most of his pigs are sold to Asia. And his farm is large enough to qualify for generous federal subsidies. But smaller ranchers and farmers are not so fortunate their margins tend to be a lot tighter, and they don't receive the kind of government support that larger farms do. I'm Shannon Eversold. I'm a rancher from southern Iowa near Mount Air. We raise Maine Anjou cattle. We sell all of our cattle as beef, bulls, or heifers. For much of the past 15 years, Shannon Eversold has struggled to make a living selling her cattle the traditional way, at auction where she receives whatever price she's offered. I had no control in price that I sold my animal. One swing of a gavel would determine whether you make your house payment for the entire year. The auction house usually sells her cows to one of the handful of major meat processors, like Tyson Foods, Cargill, or Smithfield, which control 85% of the country's meat supply. It's a system that puts a smaller rancher like Shannon Ebersole at a real disadvantage. We couldn't be at the mercy of one or two guys buying or not buying our calves for entire lives. That one small thing 
would take away our entire ability to feed our family and pay our house payment and therefore bankrupt us. Right before COVID hit, Ebersol purchased a new breeding bull. It was an investment she and her husband couldn't afford to lose. We bought a $3,000 bull and him and another bull got into a bullfight and he broke his leg above the hawk. Okay, now what? What am I going to do? How am I going to do this? He can still walk. He's still healthy. He can still move. He can't stand on his back leg to breed cows all summer. And if I don't get my cows bred, I don't have any calves. If I don't have any calves, I don't have any money. But Ebersole had an idea, even though it was risky. She would get the bull processed locally and try to sell the meat directly to her friends and neighbors. And I started calling people. And they started saying, yeah. I'll take 10 pounds. I'll take 20 pounds. I'll take 50 pounds. I've got young kids. I'll take 50 pounds. I had over 500 pounds sold by the time I got home. And then COVID disrupted the food supply and grocery store shelves were bare. That's when Shannon Ebersol's new local business took off. People were getting more and more panicked when they called to find out if they could get beef. I distinctly remember one mother calling me. Uh, She was a mother on food stamps. And she said, by the time I go shopping every single day, there's no meat left to feed my family. Do you take food stamps? And because of the farmer's market food stamp program, yes, I did. And she was so thankful. She was in tears. Ebersol no longer has to bring her cows to the sale barn for auction. She gets her animals processed locally and sells directly to her growing customer base. But she says it took a pandemic for many people to see the value of buying food from their local farmer. The problem with our food system is there's no direct contact. I'm okay if I'm not your farmer, as long as you know your farmer and you know where your farmer is and how your farmer raises your food. And if we can get rid of a little bit of those middlemen, We as consumers, we as moms, we as dads have better control that we will have food for our families. There are about 2 million farms in this country. Most are small, like the one owned by Shannon Ebersole. But about 3% are large multi-billion dollar operations. And they are responsible for more than half of the country's food production. We're relying on too few players in the system. Julia Friedgood is a senior advisor at AFT. So you've seen this incredible shift from the majority not producing much to a small minority producing almost everything. And when you have a big disruption like COVID, everything starts to break down. Because it's not just the consolidation of the farms, it's also consolidation throughout the whole supply chain of the food system. The problem, says Friedgood, is that without a diverse food supply, one that includes local and regional farms, the country is increasingly vulnerable to acute shortages brought on by climate change and other disasters, including pandemics. I think COVID was sort of the canary in the mine. It's kind of a wake-up call, but I don't think that COVID is an isolated thing. There are lots of things that can disrupt our food systems. It's not that we want to get rid of successful large operations. We just don't want them to squeeze out everybody else. You don't want to put all your eggs in one basket. The system is healthier when there's more diversity in it. 
In the town of Truckee in the California Sierras, it's pickup day at the Tahoe Food Hub. The Food Hub is in a local airport hangar where volunteers and staff are pulling produce out of the walk-in fridge and from coolers and shelves lined with hundreds of local products. It has opened my eyes about local producers, that we've got more local producers than I knew. Arthur Rader is waiting for his order that he makes online every week. He and his wife started coming here when COVID hit. We were all scared to go to the grocery store and coming here, well, you know, I show up and basically a, a whole grocery trip has happened in a couple of minutes. It's changed a lot of how we shop. It's something we've learned to appreciate and we definitely like. The Tahoe Food Hub is a nonprofit that buys from regional and specialty food producers and sells directly to local residents. Customers can also opt to buy food boxes to donate to frontline workers and other people in need. Susie Sutphin created the Tahoe Food Hub. Our mission is to create a fair marketplace for small farms and create access to local food. And we are able to bring all that seasonal, local, sustainably grown food to Tahoe and ensure it's equally distributed to those who can and can't afford it. Sutphin says the first eight years were a struggle. But since COVID, the Food Hub's customer base has more than quadrupled. And she believes people are beginning to understand the value of getting their food from sources closer to home. I wanted this to be a community-based organization. I wanted the community to build this food system and take ownership of it. Thanks to Rachel Gottbaum for that report and for the interview you heard earlier in the episode with American Farmland Trust President and CEO John Piotti. In our next episode, we'll visit Kentucky to hear how farmers are forging a comeback for one of the bluegrass state's favorite small grains, rye. It's rye that's helping farmers sequester carbon, improve soil health, and improve water quality. And it shows Kentucky as a national leader that is innovative on soil health and regenerative agriculture while producing the world's best bourbon. That's next time on No Farms, No Future, the podcast of American Farmland Trust, created in collaboration with the Heritage Radio Network and produced by The Food Voice, executive producer Louisa Kasdan and audio director and composer Michael Moss. I'm Rob Hoschel. Thank you for listening to No Farms, No Future. I'm John Piotti, president and CEO of American Farmland Trust. Learn more about our work at farmland.org and subscribe to No Farms, No Future wherever you listen to podcasts.